Oh, Heavenly Father, it's our prayer today as we open up the Scriptures that You have graciously preserved, sovereignly dictated, and delivered into our hands, that our capacity to stand in awe would be greatly increased. As we go over, Lord, and meditate on, and declare from Scripture, and consider, Lord, with our faculties and reasoning applied to this holy document, our great salvation, the amazing events, aspects, Lord, of redemptive history where heaven and earth was moved to make way for the King of glory, to be incarnate Son and Word of God, intervene into history and provide the substitutionary sacrifice for our redemption. Lord, because of the gospel visiting the doorstep of our soul, we have reason to gather here this morning. And we recognize, Lord, that life is too short, our minds are too dull, and time is so fleeting, God, even that we have together to grasp much of anything of the glories, Lord, the infinite well of glory from which to draw encouragement, worship, praise, strength, boldness. But we pray, Lord, that you would maximize these short moments that we do have so that we might shine for you as we leave this place. I pray that your word would go forth with power, not because of the delivery system myself, but that you would bypass that entirely. The Holy Spirit would write on the tables of our hearts the glorious truths of you so that we might, Lord, testify to the power of the gospel beyond these walls. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. What a privilege it is today to join together, worship the Lord, and also to study His Holy Scriptures. I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Today's message builds on last week. Last week was a message entitled Eavesdropping on the Trinity. There was a conversation recorded in Matthew where Jesus talked to the Heavenly Father. And that was a prayer we opened this service with when Jesus declared that He thanked the Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that He had hidden certain things from the wise and understanding but had revealed them to children. This morning, the title of the message is Lord of the Sabbath, because immediately on the heels of this prayer, we find in Matthew 12, verses 1 through 14, a declaration of his own authority to those who thought they were the chief authority on such things, and also a demonstration of his power and a healing that immediately followed. So let's read these scriptures together, and then we'll dig a little deeper. Verse 1, Matthew 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how they entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat? nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Verse 5. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, 
you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 9, He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? That they might accuse him. And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Amen. A description for this morning's sermon includes some thoughts as to the glory and the biblical truth of the Sabbath. Lest we be guilty of glossing over too quickly the events and the details of what's going on here and some of the ideas that are under the surface, themes indeed that are sewn together from the beginning of Scripture to the end, it probably do us well to pause and consider the weight of this exchange. This gospel record does not include this event right here where Jesus has this altercation, confrontation with the Pharisees as just a little footnote as it might appear on the bottom of a doctrinal thesis. It's much more than that, infinitely more than that. Behold, I beg you to consider the resonance of this eternal exchange. This is incredible when Jesus declares that the Son of Man, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus referred to Himself as Son of Man, capital letters there. That doesn't merely mean a human, although it means that. There's a term Son of Man that was given to us in the prophet old that denoted an individual who was responsible with delegated authority from Almighty God to be the judge over man. When Jesus uses the term Son of Man, it's an emphasis on His humanity But it also is a reference that is understood in the greater context of Scripture to be a term of authority. And so it follows when Jesus says that the Son of Man is Lord of Redemption, the two make sense. I'm sorry, the Lord of the Sabbath, the two make sense. And here we have a biblical contextual definition that I'm going to give to you at this point in the message to understand perhaps what the Sabbath is. I asked myself, what was Jesus saying in the context of biblical truth, when he said the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And here's a sentence I strung together by some thoughts that I was trying to grasp a hold of to encapsulate the profound meaning of the Sabbath. And so it follows, the Son of Man is Lord of the redemptively assuring, or the redemptive and assuring covenantal signature of God, heralding through creation and holy oracle, that is His Word, to otherwise restless man because of our sin, with death and judgment hanging over our heads, the sovereign course and consummation of all history. When Jesus declared that the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath, He meant this much and more. The Son of Man is the Lord, is Lord of the redemptive and assuring covenantal signature of God, heralding through creation and holy scripture to otherwise restless man, the sovereign course and consummation of all history. You see, God is the author of history. 
And even today, his story is unfolding before our eyes. And we read his story before our eyes in the Holy Scriptures as we open to Genesis 1.1. And there recorded for us is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From that moment to the close of the canon, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus, is the story of God's penmanship as to the plot the meaning, the purpose, direction, and government of all things and everyone for all time. And the Sabbath, the definition of Sabbath is connected to this idea. I'd like to start this message with a further note of biblical context from Hebrews chapter 4. Turn there with me if you would. Hebrews is a great book, a compendious record of the gospel. Hebrews gathers, summarizes, and proclaims and articulates the unity of the covenants and the declaration of redemption. Hebrews identifies for us so many of the Old Testament pictures, how they're fulfilled in Christ. Hebrews is a book that really is like a skeleton key that opens every lock of Scripture. And so we find Hebrews turning the key to the lock of the meaning of Sabbath in chapter 4 and even beyond this chapter I'd like to read to you this chapter just because it's so weighty and rich as to the context of Sabbath. Therefore, the author writes in verse 1, While the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed... Enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly, formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice and do not harden your hearts, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then... There remains a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom they must give an account. Verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect has who in every respect has been tempted as we, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
I'd like to bring to you five notes of context to help us understand the weight of the phrase, the declaration, Lord of the Sabbath. The first note of context, I've labeled Sabbath overview, and I take it from this chapter. Under Sabbath overview, there are four terms that help us to describe the biblical history, if you will, and the redemptive aspects of Sabbath, and plot them in four places through the course of revealed truth. But the first is predestination, the second is provisional, the third proactive, and the fourth perennial. The Sabbath includes the idea of God's predestination. The Sabbath also in the Old Testament had a provisional aspect to it. We think of the ceremony and the Sabbath instituted as God's people left Egypt while they were wandering in the desert. God instituted the Sabbath. He also told the Israelites to mark their calendar by the day of their deliverance. Thirdly, there's the proactive Sabbath, and that's where we are. The Sabbath for us is not something in expectation as much as it is in celebration of what has come. When we gather on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, we celebrate as His Christian church when Jesus Christ declared victory over sin in His own death and resurrection. And so we celebrate. We, of all believers through history, have the most proactive role in keeping the Sabbath. We celebrate and declare and proclaim. We disciple people in what has been inaugurated and what has been fulfilled. Yet there still is an aspect of expectation. And that leads us to the final category, which is perennial Sabbath. This is the Sabbath of Sabbaths. The future rest. Where, as the Scriptures declare, the last tear will fall down your cheek. The last pain and regret will be so far behind you'll never remember it again. The last twinge of pain in the nerve structure of your mortal form will fade into obscurity. And you, if you're under the blood of Jesus Christ, will step into heaven, into glory, into Sabbath rest and rejoicing before the throne of God eternal and eternally praising Him forever and without end, a perennial Sabbath. Very briefly in these four categories, when we read in chapter 4 of Hebrews verses 3 and 4, we find this identity of Sabbath with the creation week. For we who have believed enter that rest as He has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And listen, it's talking about Creator God now. Although His works were finished from the foundation of the world. For He has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all His works. God created this world in just six short days. And He did so not because He needed that time span to do it. Because his his nature and creative power was limited to that time frame, he did so to establish a pattern of truth for us. And in that pattern of truth, we find this, a Sabbath rest on day seven. God finished his creative work. In Latin, it's called his ex nihilo work, out of nothing. Ex out, nihil nothing. God created this world. As the pre-existent, the eternally existent God before anything else was, the self-existent, eternal, transcendent creator created this world out of nothing by the power of his almighty being. 
and ex nihilo, the universe spun or ex- expanded into motion, however it works, physically speaking. God only ultimately knows all the mechanics of this great universe, and science will forever have something to do, so long as he tarries, to discover the majesty of his created hand, evidenced in the forensic analysis of all the interaction, of all the matter that he spoke into being in those six days. And there is a display before us of his power to bring out of nothing something. It only took six days, and as I say, for a redemptive purpose, and on the seventh day, God rested. And his ex nihilo work, his out-of-nothing creative work, was done. Done. Finished. Complete. And here we have the predestination aspect of Sabbath. The creation Sabbath, with respect to God's creative work, carries with it the proclamation that when God sets Himself to do something, it's as good as done by the word of His power. His purposes in creation, and all His purposes in fact, are unfrustrated by anything that might stand as a roadblock or a hurdle if you and I were to set our mind to do something. When God sets a goal, there is nothing that renders it elusive or difficult. There is no nothing outside of God's power. There is no moving target. There is no regrouping effort. There is no two-letter plan. I'm reminded of an illustration I couldn't resist but bring to you again. It's been a few years, so maybe you've forgotten. I was listening to a history lecture this week about the invasion of D-Day. Eisenhower, the genius behind it, and all the generals under his command. In the providence of God, it's a worthy segment of history to study to be sure. All the factors, characters, personalities, armies, weaponry, espionage, radio signals, all of the tactical arrangements, the weather, the planes, the vehicles, and everything was finely tuned at D-Day to perform God's perfect will. But there was also other wills and plans involved underneath God's sovereignty, was there not? All these generals had plans. Hitler and all his minions in Germany thought that their land was impregnable against an invasion. And here we had the Allied forces calling their bluff. Well, on that day, which literally took two years of planning to accomplish, it seemed like perhaps all the pieces weren't in place from our perspective, but nevertheless, we couldn't wait any longer. It's go time, and D-Day happens. Well, prior to one of the last things Eisenhower did before executing the command to invade was to sit down and write two letters. Two letters to our president at the time, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The first letter said, Today's invasion, dear sir, is an utter failure, and it is all my fault. I take full responsibility for this poorly executed mission. The second letter read something like this. Dear Mr. President, against all odds, we have been successful in our mission. We've sustained great losses, to be sure, but nevertheless established a beachhead, a beachhead in Axis territory. Those are a paraphrase. There's two letters prior to the invasion. I'd like to tell you this. That from God's perspective, there are never two letters. There is one letter, one letter and one word. And all of history unfolds according to His inscrutable, 
amazing, powerful plan. When God plans, He executes with precision and power and sovereignty. And the Sabbath rest of creation emphasizes this from the first pages of Holy Scripture and from the first moments of man's conscious awareness. God creates and it is done. He says it and it is good. He declares and it is. He issues His word and it never returns void. This is the predestination truth that the Sabbath The term Sabbath in Scripture bears with it. This Sabbath of creation, when God rested on the seventh day, which was a Sabbath, as Augustine recorded for us, with no nightfall. Beautiful way of saying it. The Sabbaths for us, they're a weekly, a recurring observance because we needed to be reminded of something or things needed to be put in place. But at creation, at the creation Sabbath, It was a Sabbath with no sunset. It was established and it was done. So a Sabbath overview from scriptural context bears with it that connotation, the predestinating power of God. Secondly, for us, there was a provisional Sabbath. When I say us, I mean the covenant people of God as represented by the children of Israel in the Old Testament. In chapter 4, again, Hebrews verse 8, we have this verse, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There was a time in the Old Testament that was decreed during the time of Moses and the Exodus that once a week the people were to observe the Sabbath. But this wasn't the only Sabbath. There was the weekly Sabbath, but there was also other Sabbaths that would be a break in the labor of man, a pause or a change in his schedule to focus his attention on God There was the weekly Sabbath, but also the new moon Sabbath. The Sabbath year happened every seven years, the year of Jubilee every 50 years. There was the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is the provisional idea of Sabbath. That is, God provided for us helpful reminders, liturgy, or traditions within the culture of Scripture That reminded us they were there to teach. They had a pedagogical role, that is to teach people who otherwise wouldn't know aspects of God and specifically as it relates to the Sabbath, His plan to redeem fallen man. We find in the provisional aspects of Sabbath many ideas sown in there and taught to us through these biblical terms. There's a remembrance of His delivering power by memorializing the exodus out of Egypt, which reminds us, That when we come here on Sunday, we're memorializing our exodus from the bondage of sin. You might wonder why Israel suffered so long under the heavy hand of pharaohs in Egypt. Well, it was to show by metaphor and by historical declaration in their narrative the power of God to deliver from sin. No matter how long the oppressor has control over us as people caught in our sin, if the power of God and if the will of God sets himself to redeem us, There is nothing, no pharaoh of the heart, if you will, strong enough to hold us back from his exodus, from his delivering power. There was also praise to the Lord for harvest, which reminded us that God provided our meals. We retain something of this if you say grace before your meals. When you ask or you pause and take that moment before partaking in the meal he's provided you, your daily bread, if you do it in a biblical spirit, you are reminded 
that provisional little Sabbath moment, pause and rest, consider this is sovereignly brought to you by the hand of God. Also atonement, payment for sins by the blood of a sacrifice. Also forgiveness, debts were forgiven every seven years. A reminder of the grace and mercy of God, which was the expectation, hopefully for the biggest debt of all, for all who paid attention, the debt of sin against the holy God. There was restoration of the land. Every seven years, the land would get a rest and the the land would be restored. It would allow a reconstitution and bringing back to life. Again, speaking to us in redemptively rich language, the aspects of the gospel. There were signs of the covenant. There were canceled debts. And then ultimately, or then perhaps biggest and most emphasized is this truth. There's a rest. Remember, in original sin in Adam, the curse was not that man would work. But the curse is that man would work forever now by the sweat of his brow and anxious toil. Man was condemned to a curse of restless survival acquisition in Eden after he sinned. And now he would live paycheck to paycheck, hand to mouth. If he was earning the living by plowing the fields, he would do it under the heat of the afternoon sun. And he would suffer from sweat and sunstroke and blisters and pain. If he stopped doing it, he would eventually die. The soil would not yield to him fruit as freely as he would wish, so that he would simply pick the fruit. But no, he would have to cultivate, till, anguish, labor, perhaps contract with someone else to do so. And by anxious toil, by stressful living, man would be forced to labor for his very existence. You might think in our glorious self-exalting, God-hating, atheistic-minded industrial age that we've transcended this reality. Not so. We are more stressful today than we have been in previous years. If you judge it by statistics and drugs that are prescribed to help us deal with the throes of life, if you use those two measures alone, you see that we still suffer under a curse. In fact, we wish it upon ourselves in greater measure because we have no rest. We have no Sabbath. We're under this inescapable curse of anxious stress and toil. No matter how prosperous a nation becomes, man cannot escape this heaviness hanging over his head that I better do what I can because tomorrow I may die. Even if he's highly invested in a 401k, the market could crash. Even if he's stored up hoards for wealth, thieves could break in and steal. Even if he's just built a house, he's cursed with its degradation as now he's consigned himself to a lifestyle of maintenance just to keep it up. I was reminded of that this last week as our dishwasher and our washer both have some issues. So in spite of our best attempts through convenience and technology to put this idea of working hard behind us, we nevertheless are a people that stand in dire need of rest. And it's inescapable that we toil until we die unless God sovereignly provides a way. This provisional Sabbath was so serious that the people remember it and take it to heart that there was, it was actually a capital offense to break it. That is, if you disobeyed God's commandment to pause and to rest in His provision, recognizing that in faith He would make a way for you, if you failed to do that, it was actually a capital offense, which emphasizes to us how important the truth of Sabbath is. Thirdly, there's, a proactive, there's the proactive Sabbath in Scripture, which is 
on the glorious revelation of Jesus Christ is what we celebrate and are celebrating even here this morning. Read with me again Hebrews 4.11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom he must give account. It goes on, verse 14, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And this is what we're doing this morning. We are striving, that is, we are yearning, we are grasping, we're putting aside our distractions, opening up God's scriptures, singing songs of worship to Him in hopes that our association, our familiarity with the Word of God and laying our mind upon it, that it would pierce through the cloudiness and distractions of our sin and remind us of this truth, that without a great high priest who passed through the heavens before us, Jesus, the Son of God, we would have no hope, no future, and no Sabbath. So for us, celebrating the proactive Sabbath, if you will, we are rejoicing in and resting in the finished work of Christ to save our souls. Yet, as I said before, there's an element of rest that is still beyond our immediate grasp, and this is the perennial Sabbath. In verse 1, Of this chapter, it's referred to here, therefore, while the promise of entering rest still stands, so there's this promise that still stands that we haven't quite grasped. What is it? Well, we get shades of it and glimpses of it in Scripture. In verse 9, for instance, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And there's this idea that if we are patient, If we are faithful, if we endure, if we rally behind our high priest, then we have this confidence that we are drawing near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. And the scriptures, of course, go on to declare this perennial Sabbath as being eternal life in glory when we step past this veil of tears into heaven itself. Now, with that brief a Sabbath overview in mind. This, all that I just said and more, is what Jesus declared He was Lord over. He was Lord over when He said in Matthew 12, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man was Lord when the world was created, predestined by God, and it says in Scripture That in the beginning was the Word equated with Christ. The Word was with God. The Word was God. By Him and through Him all things were created. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of the ex nihilo Sabbath. The creation Sabbath. Jesus was there presiding over creation. When it was burst forth into being out of nothing by God's hand. Jesus was the picture in the provisional Sabbath and all the, the uh, Sabbath ceremonies and commandments of the Old Testament spoke of Him. And so when we read of the harvest and the atonement, the forgiveness, the restoration, the signs of the covenant, the canceled debt, and the rest of the Old Testament, 
Those are all speaking to Christ. He was Lord over them. He was the main theme of all of them. He was fulfilled in the eyes of everyone who had eyes to see and ears, everyone who had ears to hear of what the Sabbath promises were, the provisional Sabbath promises were. And He is, of course, Lord of the proactive Sabbath. Jesus Christ instituted at the Last Supper different liturgy, if you will, for the bread and the cup. And He said, This is My body that was broken for you. Take, eat it in remembrance of Me. This is My blood that was shed. Take and drink of this cup. And when He did that, He inaugurated Himself as the fulfillment of the Passover Jesus is Lord of the proactive Sabbath that we celebrate today. And finally, Jesus rules and reigns over the perennial Sabbath that we will enjoy in heaven one day, even as Revelation opens with Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion and forever. Forever and ever, amen, behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, it goes on to declare the final judgment over all the earth and Jesus ruling and reigning over the perennial Sabbath for those who are hid in Christ. Now, as we explore the context, another note of context that was Sabbath overview from Scripture But consider the Sabbath overview that just Matthew chapter 11 and 12 give us. First of all, I just recall last week's message to your mind, the Sabbath prayer of Jesus that preceded this moment. That is, before he declares to the Pharisees, I tell you something greater than the temple is here, the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath, he has already uttered this prayer. And last week, We fancied ourselves eavesdropping on the Trinity as we read this conversation between God and the Father in 1125, Jesus and the Father. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. There we have the predestination overtones. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. There we have the provisional and proactive overtones of his revelation to those who he chose to Awaken, verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And there we see Jesus Himself identifying Him as the door, Himself as the door, the only way to eternal life. But then, listen to these verses. He closes this beautiful prayer, this doxology with. 28 through 30, He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is a Sabbath fulfillment prayer over his own. Jesus, our great intercessor, has prayed this prayer over us if you are in him today. Jesus has prayed over us before the Father and has granted us at the cost of His blood rest from our labor and our heavy ladenness in sin. For the first time in redemptive history, it is declared from the mouth of Him who could do it by the power of His own shed blood 
that there is a perennial Sabbath promised and secured for those who are in Him, where that curse to stressfully labor under the curse of sin is lifted and the heavy laden stress and throes of life that beleaguer every individual, some to the point of suicide, others to the point of depression, discouragement, and despair, some to dine early under the weight of their burden, some to a myriad of sinful escape mechanisms only to increase the layers of deception on into this world comes Christ and He says, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is a promise that can only come from the Lord of the Sabbath. Only one can give rest from the curse of sin, the Lord of the Sabbath. Only one who is there at the beginning, only, only one who is pictured in the provision, only one who was the proactive sacrifice, only one who holds the keys to life and death, only one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given has the authority, the power to say this truth, declare this truth with meaning and to utter this prayer efficaciously. And that one is our Lord of the Sabbath, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. And He says to us, Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. What will we find? We will find rest, Sabbath, peace for our souls. Notice it's not just a temporary alleviation of something even psychological or physical that we labor under. There are many ways and means of man that seek to provide us a temporary relief from those things. But there's more rest than that promise and infinitely more so in this prayer. Jesus offers rest, not just for our psyche, not just for our bones, our muscles. He provides rest for our souls. Praise the Lord. That's the Sabbath prayer, a note of context to help us understand the weight of this phrase, something greater than the temple is here. Of this phrase, the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. Number three, note of context, Sabbath argument. Jesus goes on to make His case, arguing with the powers that be, if you will, the religious elite who had a different understanding. The heretical Pharisees did not recognize Jesus for who He was. And so at that time when Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, they saw Him as breaking the codes of the Old Testament when they began to pick the heads of grain and to eat them. The Pharisees saw this and they said to Jesus, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. And notice the argument Jesus uses. He says, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? Now he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Now you see in the history and in the mind of these individuals he was talking to, David, King David, had an exalted place in their history. He was Israel's greatest king. He was seen in a prophetic and rightly so light of prefiguring the Messiah, one who was to come. And there was a moment in David's life, an interaction in his duties as chief magistrate over Israel, 
where he actually entered the temple at one time and hungry ate of the showbread. And he got away with it, if you will. It wasn't that, the, that God was not looking at that time or the fire that's reserved in heaven that immediately destroyed, at some points, thousands for false worship wasn't there at God's disposal to strike him down in a moment. It was that this event had redemptive significance. This was more than just your average son of Aaron who was offering strange fire on the altar. This was more than your pragmatic a guy, I can't remember his name, who steadied the altar. This was a picture of the king of kings prefigured in David. This was David. And so because of his exalted place, by God's sovereign revealed will, the Pharisees recognized the importance of this moment. But notice, notice Jesus' argument in this, in this text. It's from the lesser to the greater. If David has the liberty to do such a thing because of his authority and his position, how much more the king of kings. Jesus was introduced in this gospel as the son of David. Jesus was in the lineage of this great king. But Jesus infinitely surpassed the kingship and the authority of David such that David is relegated to a shadow and a picture of him and indeed himself a sinner. Jesus was the form and the substance to which the Old Testament pictures and figures were just a type and a shadow. It was here, the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, if the Pharisees had ears to hear at this time, their only right response would be to hit your knees so fast that both of them would come up bruised as you bowed in humble worship and adoration before the one who is greater than David. You can bet that they would have shown their fealty to David had they been born then. They had enough knowledge to respect his authority. They would have honored him as their king. But here was the king of kings, the greater than David that was here, the greater than the temple had arrived, the greater than the Jonah than Jonah was speaking, the greater than the queen of the south, the, or the, I'm sorry, the greater than Solomon had come, as the scriptures go on to declare in this section, and they were blind. Nevertheless, Jesus' argument stands, and the weight of the scepter in Christ's hand, that is, representing his authority, so far eclipses David, that if they would have just heard his prayer earlier and had taken it to heart, they would know that they had better beseech this man for mercy. As David says, or as Jesus later says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He would not have condemned the guiltless. They needed the mercy that only he could offer earlier in his prayer. Jesus had declared that all things had been handed over to him by his Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And in Christ's hand was the scepter of authority that was over every other authority, over every other king. So this argument from lesser to greater, Jesus uses David as the example there's a second argument along the same lines as to the temple and the priests. We continue to find here as we read in verse 5. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And again, in this situation, 
argument from lesser to great, greater. The priests were guiltless because they had certain privileges and roles and responsibilities to serve in God's temple. They were immune from some of the effects that other people would be, some of the judgments other people would be punished for because they had anointing, a, a, a special or particular call to serve in that role. Well, here is Jesus Christ, the anointed one who is anointed for a special and particular call to provide redemption for the people. He is the fulfillment of what the temple symbolized. He is the sacrifice that the countless myriad sacrifices of old spoke to, could never satisfy, but only proclaim. Here he was. He was greater than the priests, and he was greater than the temple. And this was the argument that Jesus used. He used this inclusive term in closing. Something greater than the temple is here. The whole economic system within the religious rites and notions and faith of the Old Testament, the whole religious structure, Jesus actually says that He has eclipsed it in His own greatness. Something greater than the temple is here. Now you can see by these claims that if you did not believe, you would want to kill this man. If you believed what you thought was your faith um, and you held exclusivity to it. And so the Pharisees conspired against him how to destroy him in verse 14. But let me tell you, for those who recognize that Jesus Christ was indeed who he proclaimed himself to be, the Lord of the Sabbath, they found forgiveness for their sin, healing for their body. They found hope for their future, and they found the promise of perennial Sabbath in their own, in the, in their own life course as they gained the precious gift of eternal life by Jesus' shed blood, the down payment of His shed blood for their sins. Fourthly, Sabbath miracle. Notes of context. Covered a Sabbath overview, the Sabbath prayer that Jesus precedes this section with. Jesus argues in, from the lesser to the greater in this Sabbath argument. And then this section is followed with a Sabbath miracle. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And Jesus could have gone on from there anywhere else. But notice what he did in verse 10. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? You know, if Jesus was interested in keeping a low profile here... And not challenging the authority structures of the day, he could have simply waited a few hours, presumably till the next day, waited a day to heal this man. He did not. There's a reason why. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? They were setting him up here. Jesus said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man who had that withered hand, he stretched it out. It was restored, healthy, like the other one. And then here's the reaction again. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. In this Sabbath miracle, Jesus underscores his power. He has declared it by his words, and now he's shown it by his hand. He has, it's, a, it's one thing to say things, but it's another thing to follow that up with the exclamation point of a miracle on the Sabbath day that shows your power unequivocally. It's exactly what he did. 
when Jesus did this Sabbath day miracle, mind you, he did it in the synagogue, in the place that was reserved for that hallowed day and what it represented. He did it as one who had the power to do so, and he explained what the Sabbath terms actually were. So in this Sabbath miracle, we find it was an act of definition. Jesus defines the Sabbath as against the wayward or the thinking, the deception that the, they were indulging themselves with. The Pharisees of that day, he said, in fact, the Sabbath is meant for doing good. Sabbath wasn't meant to be oppressive to man. The Sabbath was meant to be correlated, to be associated with man's freedom, his rest, and his liberty. In fact, a sheep, if it were to fall on, into a pit on the Sabbath, it was lawful by Jesus' own declared authority here to lift it out. How much more value is a man than a sheep, he said. Jesus defined the Sabbath in this act. He also demonstrated that he was Lord of the Sabbath in this act. And he also defied those who claimed to be the authority of the Sabbath in this act. Definition, demonstration, and defiance. All to underscore what? That the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Finally, Sabbath prophecy. This brings us up to our series. Having backtracked some, we're reminded in verse 17 and following in chapter 12, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And listen to these words that recorded of the prophet of old in 18 through 21. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarry quarrel nor cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. I submit to you that this is a Sabbath prophecy as well. There's a history of prophetic Sabbath implications. One final point I'll have you turn to, just two verses at the very end of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 66. Sabbath and prophecy The scriptural overview of Sabbath, this idea of God's redemptive glory revealed in what man was to practice religiously in the Old Testament, but also was a picture of what God rested in after creating the whole world and what was proactively demonstrated in Jesus' saving work and what is parentally promised in glory. We read of these ideas coming together again in the prophets of old. And this Sabbath prophecy reads as follows as we come to the climax of what Isaiah proclaims in 66, 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. This is the perennial Sabbath that's promised. And it's also prophesied that not just the ethnic Jew, but the Gentiles grafted in will appreciate it. It says the new heavens and the new earth that he makes will remain before him, says the Lord. So shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon. From Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. There is a promise held in the power of the Lord of the Sabbath to grant. And that is yours, believer, if you are under the shed blood of Jesus Christ. 
that is your eternal life, that remains as sure to you as the creation stands, never to sunset, as the product of God's almighty hand, because He has sovereignly recreated your soul. As we find in Matthew 12, there's a prophecy that the Gentiles, the justice of the gospel will be proclaimed to them, and that in His name He will hope. That's echoing Isaiah, and Isaiah echoes back to this section that the Sabbath will one day be experienced by myriads of people who have been saved by the almighty power of Jesus' blood. Another passage of Scripture to refer to in your own time later, perhaps, Ezekiel 20, 10 through 13. It's declared in that Scripture that the, that the holistic, if you will, or the comprehensive vision, view, definition of Sabbath was meant for a purpose that they, that is the little children Jesus spoke to in Matthew 11, that they might know that He, by that demonstration, that He, it, that the Spirit of God was upon him that he had provided redemption. The Sabbaths were there to communicate the attributes and redemption of God. And so when we take some of these thoughts together, we find that in this section, Jesus declares himself to be a son of man and the Lord of the Sabbath. That is, the son of man is Lord and will always be Lord from now and forever, from moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath till all flesh shall come to worship before Him in the new heavens and the new earth. The Son of Man is Lord and this thought that He is Lord of the Sabbath should be the most assuring thought to you because in it is contained the redemptive truth of your salvation secured in His blood and you now have written on your heart the covenantal signature of God, which was heralded through creation all the way through to revelation by holy oracle and by the works made manifest that make manifest His glory around us, that there is a rest for us who are otherwise condemned to utter hell-bent restlessness. Instead of that, God has grafted us into the sovereign course and consummation of all of history where He will recreate the heavens and the earth. They will be reconstituted, new heavens and new earth. And our hearts, which have been resurrected from the death of sin, will be there with our resurrected bodies. And we will share in, that is, if you know Jesus Christ today, the perennial Sabbath through the power of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice because He was greater than the temple. He was the Son of Man and He was Lord of the Sabbath. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, I pray that the truths of Scripture would set our minds soaring into the glorious heights of worship as we think about and ask you to write on the tables of our hearts the truths of your Scripture that you have revealed for us. I pray, Lord, that you would make it real to us that this glorious path that you have created for us is something that you have sovereignly ordained and all of history marches by your command towards. Father, I pray that that hope that you have placed within us would greatly encourage and embolden and strengthen us. My prayer, Lord, is that we would apply this message next week 
by looking forward to Sunday, looking forward to coming here and proactively celebrating the Sabbath. Jesus finished work together because these thoughts and many more from Scripture that are there for us to ponder move us to excitement and to worship. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to this end. And if this prayer is answered, we give you glory in advance because only the Spirit of God can communicate the truth of God and remind us that the will of God in Jesus Christ our Lord is the most glorious thing that we could ever set our mind upon. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.